American author Wayne Dyer observed that society always seems to honour its living conformists and its dead troublemakers. Well, we reckon it's time to put that standard to the test. Hi, I'm Waistcoat Dave and this is Confessions of a Troublemaker, the podcast from Compassionate Troublemaking. Hi, Compassionate Troublemakers, and welcome to the first episode of 2021. Um, That sounds a bit weird to say because the gap between the last episode of 2020 and the first episode of 2021 has been a very, very big one. There were reasons for that. I think um, for a long time, I wasn't sure following the events in America, um, starting with George Floyd's death and, 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 and stuff with Trump. I haven't always necessarily felt like having this conversation that we've been having on on these episodes has been the right step forward. Um, and the other thing being that I wanted to make sure I had enough content to move us forward and that that content was framed in the right way. There was a bit of problem around editing on the software that I was using, but we think we found a, a way around that now. So for anyone that listened to previous episodes and the audio sounded very much out of order, I apologize for that. It wasn't something we were aware of until fairly long into the journey of it and so hopefully that will that will improve but onwards and upwards as they say and today for the first episode back in 2021 i'm joined by mel smith from coventry grapevine Uh, coventry grapevine do some really really good work um, with engaging communities and individuals that are neurodiverse and that have a variety of different needs and the thing that's really powerful about their work is often these people are people that are being ignored within, you know, we find people with additional needs, be they physical, be they emotional, be they mental, in all areas of society. And too often they're pushed down, their needs aren't addressed, or if they are addressed, they're addressed very structurally. They need to go and see the doctor for a medical reason. Actually, a lot of the work that Grapevine supports is around um social changes and getting the voice of every single participant and every single citizen or as many citizens as they can into the wider conversation around how a city is developed how a city meets the needs of its citizens and there's something really powerful around that and really fascinating around that so the conversation with mel today um as often with a lot of our conversations covers what led her into that space she says she shares um, a lot of information around her own family and her own experiences caring and living with somebody that has additional needs and yeah it's it's a fascinating conversation which merges the personal and the professional and when we then talk about what that looks like moving forward um, there's some really powerful stuff Um, this was recorded last year and so they've continued grapevine have continued to do some really good work so go and check them out and then, as always, I'll come back at the end and we'll, we'll talk about where we move from here. So uh, thank you for returning, and I really hope you enjoy this this fascinating conversation. My name is Mel, Mel Smith. I am Deputy CEO at Grapevine Coventry in Warwickshire. I'm a community organiser. I'm an activist. I'm a mum. I'm a nanny. I'm a wild swimmer and I'm in the business of growing leaders from all walks of life. And I've realised that I am probably a compassionate troublemaker. It really resonated with me. So, and you know, because you arrived at the summit and I was like, oh yes, 
there's a compassionate troublemaker in the room I was like that's what we need I was I got really excited about it I think I even commented on it in the chat box actually <laughs> so um yeah but no just brilliant yeah I mean we've used terms like mischief makers you know just like I guess we're it's difficult to explain your work isn't it and also make it sound fun and playful mm. but then you can do that and you'll attract a certain amount of people and then other people need to hear about it in a different way and it's that adaptation of exactly what you do and having loads of different um kind of definitions for it um and knowing when to pull them out the bag a lot of people in political conversations would be like no 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 i can't i can't have this conversation because and they'll always go to something along the lines but i'm not smart enough to have this conversation and it always really kind of upset me because we should be able to use our language to engage everybody because everybody has a voice and it shouldn't be about and i think in certain avenues it does in certain change making third sector avenues it does where you need to reach this criteria of intelligence or understanding or, or engagement to one have a say on this and to understand it it is and i guess that part of that is that a lot of the language that we love to use is a, is a more human language you know and sometimes it's got lovey-dovey fluffy words in it and it's engaging and it's the kind of thing that most of us would like to receive mm. um, but i i would love to um to understand how you know some of the emails that we sent out on the run-up to the community is not just for pandemic summit what the response was from some of the local councillors and MPs to that email um, because it was you know it was real human language and um, yeah so I'm, I'm yet to I want to engage in those kind of conversations about how those things make people feel and why we can't have a more shared human language instead of one that excludes. Did you find there was a turnout by those people in positions of power? Not that it's all about them, but it's always interesting to see who actually shows up to things. Um, some, but not, so some people that I had sort of targeted didn't arrive. And, um, you know, I was, uh, I was more, I was going more along the troublemaking side of things, thinking, right, I'm going to send this kind of email now. And then I was like, I remembered the compassion, you know, because, right, we're all human beings and we've got to try and, get the balance right and uh, a very good friend of mine Stephanie Leonard and she was like this is the sort of email you need to send <laughs> we missed you mm. <laughs> but it's true in a way you know and I think we missed you followed by you know some of the things that co have come from the summit so far and it's only you know we're only just a week into it um, but also sending them the screenshots of all the photos of the people that were there because these are the people from our city who showed up. Yeah. You know, they wanted to engage in this conversation. So it's not lost. And, you know, I think as with everything, it's in your follow-up. It's like, so what do you do next that is going to make the difference, I think. But I'm glad the summit is over because it was like, oh, my God. I can imagine it was intense. Well, it's just like not having done anything like that online before, you know, and um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. And there was, I think, a lot of nerves beforehand. But, you know, putting local change makers at the front of that as well and, you know, co-creating and co-designing what that would look like 
because um, we knew what it want, we wanted it to feel like, you know, um, and the kind of welcome that people would get. And they've just been phenomenal, you know. They're just they're just not phased at all. I think I'm probably more nervous than anybody else, but yeah. It is that kind of energy, isn't it? It's that mixture of excitement and apprehension. Like you don't know what's going to come of it, but you know there's the possibility of um, something really amazing coming out. And I, I, you know, I've done I've done a fair number of um, different activities, different places, both in person and virtually. I've done change making events. I've also done a lot of uh, union past events because I did a lot of union work. And something that really did resonate with me on the on the day was that follow-up and the fact that you turned around and said look we're going to come back to individually to anyone that wants to because you do have a lot of events where it's a standalone event and actually if we talk about building those roots and, and anybody would say like the change making needs that longevity of in one form or another and so it did really resonate with me about creating that, that foundation for more um while still keeping that local to coventry yeah, because we knew that, you know, lots of people have been having a conversation about, you know, the pandemic, what we've learned, you know, the things we want to keep, the things we aren't. So we know that there are lots of people have been having those kind of conversations, but for as many that have, there's as many who haven't as well. And so it felt really important to bring all of those people together, but actually it would have been a complete waste of time to not have something that that could happen after that because there's all that capacity and all that energy sitting in one space and you know you kind of got to we always look at it like if we plan an action so the summit was an action like what capacity do we build how can our movement connected for good be more powerful now you know um, who's been developed so we're always you know that's the way we look at it because otherwise like you say we'd just be doing these standalone events that um, were nice but you don't always remember them they kind yeah. of you know that was really good but actually I didn't really know what I could do afterwards so far we've got 32 people wanting to have one-to-ones with us so that's brilliant but we're in the process of designing that kind of structured conversation um, so that the change makers feel really comfortable with, you know, with that. So we want to co-create that with them um, yeah. because, you know, we could be doing them all, but we'd be absolutely knackered. And actually this movement doesn't belong to us. You know, it was created for the people of our city. And so they need to be the ones that start to have the conversations now and they're really up for it. So um, we're just working really hard to pull all that together now. But yeah, it's brilliant. I turned up at Grapevine as a service user. I have a son with a learning disability and um, we'd been sort of in and out of trying to find support and help for him. Um, all the kind of, you know, when you go and seek help, when you're younger, you think, oh yeah, I'm ill, I'll go and see a doctor, they can cure me. Or I'll go here because they're the people that are supposed to be able to do that. And for whatever reason, the things that were on offer to us that were on that menu, they didn't they didn't work and we were we were in a bit of a sticky situation with him because he was you know he has a learning disability he was growing up he was going transitioning to secondary school his behavior was off the chart you know it was just really hard times and we were a strong family you know so I thought well 
I think we probably were actually, but we were beaten down with it, I think. And um, so we'd done all sorts of stuff, you know, psychology, art therapy, just, you know, everything. We tried everything. And um, my sister said to me, oh, you know, there's this organisation. They've got this ad in the newspaper. It's called Grapevine. And, you know, typical me, I just thought, voluntary sector organisation, charity, you know, the real professionals haven't been able to help. What are they going to do? And, um, and boy, was I wrong, because from the moment that I walked through the door in the office, I thought I was going to do what I normally had to do, which was tell people the, the bad story, you know, mm. the sob story, you know, all of that. And they were just like, hold on a minute, can you, um, would really love to hear all the lovely things about your family. And I, at first, I, I wanted to literally, you know, tell them to do one, because I was expecting this whole thing. And what I got was something very different but it made me insanely curious about the potential of what they could do. And I kind of thought, oh, okay, well, it's interesting. Let's go with this and see what happens. And their approach was just phenomenal, like really simple. They just listened to him. They listened to what he could say, which at the time wasn't a lot. And he said two things to them. I want to have a life, a life like my brother's and I want to be on EastEnders. And so what they did was they spent time with his brothers, learning what their lives were like and working out what he meant by that. And they said, right, well, if you want to be on EastEnders, you need to be, you need to join a drama company. So let's find you one. Um, whereas, you know, when he'd said things like that before, if we'd been in sort of multi-agency meetings, it was always a bit like, oh yeah, everybody wants to be an actor. Um, and, and yet I'd known from when he was very small, he was hilarious, you know, he would, he was, you know, probably a couple of years old and the phone would ring and he would pick, lift his foot up from, you know, down on the floor and put it up to his ear. And, go, <laughs> and you know, he was just a little entertainer. So I knew that, you know, he, he wanted this badly because it was him. It was innately him. He was a performer, you know. And, um, and just to hear them just say, okay, that's simple. Let's find you a drama group because any actor has had to start somewhere. Um, and that's what they did. And they found him an amazing um, drama company in Coventry who became an amazing community of support for all of us, actually. And the aspiration and hope and everything else just went through the roof. It was like transformational for our family, you know, and I started to realize that there was something really powerful in um, the power of human connection and being connected to other people and to other things, but with people who believed, believed that sometimes what might seem impossible, we could test that and let's see where we go with it. So yeah, that's how I first came across them. And I was frustrated as well because I, I was teaching at the time and um, I was working uh, in a school for boys in Coventry that had been excluded from every other school. And I felt like I'd I was nailing that, you know, I was able to do that and to support and help other people's children. But when it came to my own son, I was just finding it really hard. I was, I'd be at work and think, God, if only I could work at Grapevine, you know, oh, okay, I'm going to become a, I'm going to see if I can become a trustee. Um, so I became a trustee. And then two or three years after that job came up, 
and um, I thought, right, I'm going to give it a go, and then the rest is history. So I feel like it's an important story to tell because my learning about potential and possibility had always been there, but I needed I needed to have more of a personal experience around it and understand what it would be like to be surrounded by people who wanted to make change and believe that people could have and lead amazing lives and um and yeah and i mean my son he's upstairs now he sings for about an hour every day uh, he's 20 26 he told me yesterday and um so he's got a real strict routine has had throughout the uh throughout lockdown because he's really into physical fitness as well uh, so he does that. He's done that all this morning. Then he sings in the afternoon, um, and then tonight we've got a call with his friend. They're gonna, they're planning on putting um, an application into City of Culture to do some a piece together. Um, but he's he's made it as an actor. So he's been on a Channel Four show. He's recently done a couple of stints on BBC Doctors. He was on a national tour before um, before we went into lockdown. So it's. Yeah, it's just been phenomenal, actually, and it's taught me a lot. Amazing. Shows you, doesn't it? So an issue that I have is, you know, many, many, many moons ago, we had the idea of the institutionalised, you know, going into the loony bins, as people would say. And when there was a move to bringing people into the community, I think too quickly it moved into this idea of, right, everything's fine now, we're all good now, we don't have any of these institutionalised mentalities because we're letting people with difficulties in with everybody else kind of thing and there was the continuation of a lot of these kind of toxic limiting ideas and what we've needed is we've needed those organizations like Breakvine to come forward and go hold on a minute actually you know these people that you're identifying as different or, or or whatever they still have dreams they still have desires they still have things that they can do but we're still so focused on either what they can't do or the diagnosis which frames almost like their entirety yeah that really I, I just i sometimes i'm amazed by how little we've changed since. in my dream of what the world would be like and many of the people that we that i work and work with and alongside it's the same dream that 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 kind of life should be ordinary mm -hmm. shouldn't have to hold him up as an example of you know this is the potential of what someone could be it should be you know, it should be normal that people have high expectations um, for themselves and other people. And it's just, you know, that frustrates, frustrates me sometimes, you know, and also having to say that, you know, it's like um, sometimes people will say, well, you know, what's your idea of success when you're running something? And it is that we get like real diversity um, in the room but then you've got to talk about that. But for yeah. me, it's, it's like I have to, I feel like I have to apologize for stating that there were, you know, people in the room that had autism, a learning disability, mental health issues. You know, that's not, it doesn't feel comfortable, but we're still in a stage where we have to say that. Otherwise, some people will miss that. They will miss yeah. it. Or they'll think it's some sort of token gesture. And for us, we live and breathe that, you know, you haven't had a successful gathering or um, you haven't got a successful movement if there aren't people from all walks of life within it and leading it. 
we really want people and communities to be able to take action on the things that they really care about you know and part of that means that they need to claim some power and they need to work out how they're going to do that and what matters to them is really important because that will be the motivating factor and if we can you know get people thinking along the lines of if they can take collective action and grow um, you know a group of people who want to do something about something that they've got they'll have an opportunity to do it you know and they'll fulfill what they want you know what they want to get out of it and that feels really important you know and that's the only way then by learning from that that's the only way we can start to, to talk to services and systems about transformation you know because i think for so long it's like people need services they need that thing but actually and in the case of my son and you can't you know not every story is the same i get that so people could hear me tell my story about rashad and they'd say but my son's different to that you know he's got autism or he's you know there's something else um and it's not it's not that people's stories need to be identical we need to listen to the stories of change and think what is the moral of that story you know because that's where the power lies we can easily dismiss you know if something doesn't quite fit our family or you know how we might be able to do things but by challenging people and saying you know listen to the moral of that story and what does it mean and what do we learn from that because um, sometimes i think we let ourselves off from being challenged by things like that by just you know taking the easy option um, and you've got to dig a bit deeper i think and and try to understand there's examples everywhere. It's just, you know, finding people who want to listen and explore and learn together. And um, I think that's what's been really lovely about, about my work at Grapevine. Um, you know, since 2016, um, we sort of have been exploring um, movement building and trying to understand what that means. And, you know, would it be a different approach? And, and it's just, you know, it's been really phenomenal to learn um, and to take, you know, aspects of organising, mixing it with movement building, looking at, you know, what grapevines and really always done well, which is community building and person-centred planning and kind of putting all of that together and saying, what is going to come out the other end of this? You know, what are we creating here so that, you know, like what you saw at the summit, so that we have got change makers that are coming from all walks of life, you know, and are making a difference. Um, and when people realise and they step into their power, it's just the most beautiful thing. It really is. Uh, yeah, and it, it's funny because they are so, they feel so indebted to the team and they're, they're so, uh, oh, you know, like they're so positive and all the comments they say about us are beautiful. But, you know, I keep saying to them, it's not about us as a team. This is about you and your own leadership. And if you really love the way that the team behave, then take what you like about what they're doing and bring it into your own leadership and start to talk to others about it, you know, because um, we've got to move them on from thinking that we are the ones, you know, because they are the ones. Social care are not providing a service where people can realise what they want, you know, to the extent of creating social change. 
they are looking for support and help for people, which is fine, you know, and I'm glad that that's there. But if the menu that they operate from isn't diverse enough that people aren't growing because of what's on offer, then that's, you know, that's not okay. Because then, you know, we've got a whole load of people who are struggling with life, not feeling fulfilled, frustrated, you know, and who, whose behavior wouldn't go a bit yeah. awry if those things in life, you know, weren't happening. So I think it's difficult with movements to help people to understand. And with Connecting for Good, we've done a lot of work recently with the team on trying to work out how we explain it, how, you know, what are the entry points? We've created a menu now. Um, and I think it will be a lot easier for people to come in. I think the one thing that has been difficult, especially at the beginning, has been around boundaries because this work is human work. You know, you work from your heart, you bring your whole self, your, your person who you are outside of work and the person who you are in work the same you are who you are and people get to know you as that but then you need to put some boundaries in place otherwise you're getting phone calls at two o'clock in the morning and um you know people's expectations are you'll do you know can you help me with this this and this so it's important that people understand the limitations of what we can do because we're not debt management you know we can't help with certain things we're in you know we're in the business of social change and sometimes that's quite hard if at that moment they are not ready to become a change maker it could be because now there's 15 um, smaller movements that are operating in the city led by all sorts of wonderful people um, and sometimes it's about come and try that come and try have a look at this what do you think you know be curious come and see what they're doing um and i think that opportunity to let people sort of try before they buy is also a really lovely thing and then really so so outweighed by the amount of fun that we've had and the learning and the ability to flex you know to to what we find so you know if you're coming into this with an idea of what's going to happen at the end you know you can't because it depends on who comes in who you meet on the way what ideas they've got you know if you're truly thinking about community engagement then you have honestly you have no idea what's going to happen and you know that's really really exciting but it's also really daunting for a lot of people because most people come in and a project will have a, a beginning a middle and an end and this is what we're expecting and with this work, it's not, it's not as clear cut as that. But for people who like things that are a bit edgy, they're well suited to that. And some things have, you know, have landed well and that we've managed to develop them and they've, um, you know, and they've developed really well. But then of course the pandemic struck and then it was like, now what are we going to do? And we did a lot of focusing on the health of um, the people, well, to colleagues at Grapevine. So, you know, we made sure that once we'd gone into lockdown that we were all healthy so it's like how are our team how are the people we're working alongside and how are our movements you know what are they feeling right now because a lot you know most of their contact was face to face so we'd gone from this 
you know, creating social change that was led by people, banners on the streets, you know, um, storytelling popping up in the middle of town, you know, disrupting space so that we could make sure that we're trying to reach people that we wouldn't normally reach because people have been consulted or engaged to death. So, you know, setting up things in the city centre that felt really different, um, little parklets or a living room or whatever, all stopped. So we entered this very weird world and it's, you know, we, would, we needed to understand that we were all healthy enough to be able to move forward, but move forward we did very, very quickly actually and got onto Zoom within days and within a week we were holding, uh, so we do a once a month, it's Coventry's um, Ideas Night, third Wednesday of every month, it's called Collaboration Station um, and we were just like, should we do it or not? You know what's it going to be like well 40, 40 odd people turned up and we were like okay all right so we we were lucky in the sense that we were brave enough to to do it and there's you know there's a two change makers that lead collaboration station you know it's their thing and we're in the background just helping them to develop it and look for more leaders um, and they were really up for it so you know we kind of got over that first daunting experience and um, and then, yeah, we, t we tried to work out what the different movements could potentially do. Um, and, you know, there've been some amazing things that happened during lockdown. So a group of guys that I'm working with, they, um, they're really bothered about men's health and, um, you know, they were planning in the real world, we were planning the most amazing things, you know, we were going to go out into the city centre and do a listening campaign. We were going to get a film crew and they were going to follow them around and we were going to create this idea that there were celebrities in the city and when people asked who they were, then we were just going to say, just an ordinary guy from Coventry, but he's got quite an extraordinary story, you know. Um, because we wanted to attract other dads into that or other men into that movement. And of course, we couldn't do any of that. So um, they said, right, well, what are our strengths? You know, we like music. Uh, we've, you know, we could probably organise something online. So they, they held Friday night lock-ins, you know, um, that were brilliant. They had like three or four different DJs. It was a Friday between five and six. You could bring your kids. Den making, you know, one week was den making. Loads of people turned up and they'd created dens in their living room. And yeah, it was, it was nice. So people adapted um, and the movements adapted, but very, very conscious now about a lack, lack of access to technology and realizing as well that, um, you know, that's an issue. And, and at Grapevine, you know, it's one of the things that we've had to really think about because so much of our work focused on face to face. And then you come into a situation like this and realize that digitally you're not very savvy and you haven't really thought about it enough. So the people that haven't got access to it, they haven't got access to it, you know. And so you realize that there's a real issue there around digital poverty. But, you know, we're thinking about what we're going to do about that and how we'll tackle it. Um, but we've managed to coach most people to get online and to... Um, to be able to access Zoom. Something I'm aware of is almost that unseen community that you have this this link to. How what would your advice be for people and organisations engaging in them? What are your take homes to continue the engagement that you're doing on that front? But also, I guess, 
engaging with the community that's out there in Coventry and there in the world that may not initially engage with you or may not it may not become apparent the need to engage with you to start with how do you yeah. win people over yeah and that you know that's tough isn't it it's it's hard and we haven't you know we we haven't cracked it um we are trying um to understand how we do that um and i think we're doing okay um, but there's still people out there that we're not reaching. And the question is like, who's missing from the table and what do we do about that? And so, you know, even when we're thinking about our change makers, they are thinking, they have to think about the same thing. Like you can't, if you're creating a movement or movements, you know, smaller movements underneath Connecting for Good that wants to end isolation in Coventry, then we have to work out who's not here um, because for some of those people they're you know they're not they're not online um you know how are we going to find them and i think it's been really important to try out these different methods of trying to find people um, and one of the things we did in the early days was something called um we called it silent megaphone um and that was about how do we go out into the city to carry the voices of people who have experienced isolation and bring them back in and to learn from them and about engagement and you know what people see as the solutions so we went out into the city center and we just put a big sign up on a on a white sheet that just said what makes us isolated and we hung it in the city center in different spots where we knew that you know we would capture different types of people um, and just waited to see what would happen and we were kind of like mm. What if nobody actually approaches or does anything, but people started to come up and they would be like, why is that there? Why have you put that there? Or they'd automatically launch into a story about being isolated. And I mean, the diversity of people that we were speaking to was just phenomenal. It was incredible, actually. Um, and taking different aspects of the city um, we'd done some work with the bid teams, the business improvement district. So we knew where certain things were happening in the city centre and what we could, you know, where we might need to position ourselves. So that felt really important. But as we were talking to them, we would ask them if we could um, recite back what we heard them saying and whether we could write it down. And we created placards. So we had the big sign and then by the end of the day, there would be like 30 or 40 placards carrying the voices of the people of this city. Um, and, and, you know, what, what their view was about isolation and what we could do about it. And then from there, from that listening, we would um, get in touch and you know, try and arrange to meet them for a one-to-one. -one. And those one-to-ones are, you know, we always just say, come and have a cup of tea or coffee. Um, it's a very, it's a structured conversation where we're, you know, really trying to understand each other. Um, but it's also very joyful and very nice, but it's the art of going deep quite quickly. Um, and to kind of work out where, where people feel comfortable and what they might like to explore. Um, and I think that that is really powerful. So finding the people in really unusual ways, you know, to engage people. Well, we've set up a living room in the middle of the city city centre, well, outside Primark actually, um, and just sat there with a, you know, we were on chairs, a rug, plant, 
Um, we've done some chalking around it with some sort of like, you know, pivotal questions. And it was brilliant the way that, you know, people interacted with that. So in a way, you've got to put yourselves into situations and places that might not feel entirely comfortable and do something a bit quirky because people are being are sick of being stopped and asked to fill in surveys and, um, and stuff like that. Um, and the team actually were great. So at the Godiva Festival last year, they decided they'd try and fill in 100 surveys in the funniest way possible. Um, and they went out dressed out uh, dressed as um, Annika, you know, as in Challenge Annika. So they'd got full on leather all in ones on. A big uh, Joe, who's um, one of our change makers, it was her first experience of being with us. She was running around with a cardboard um, video camera uh, be behind uh, Jen and Gemma dressed in their leather outfits and just like literally stopping people and saying look right we know you hate surveys but we need to know this what do you think um and so it's just like having a really creative approach to how you get people to you know to think and stop and talk and to engage in conversation um you know is is really brilliant and joe we didn't frighten her off so she's been back for more and she's now uh, one of the leaders of collaboration station the monthly um ideas night so you know there's something in it it's a bit different and yeah. i think people are fed up of being engaged or consulted in the same way and so we have to rethink all of that yeah it's weird because i think the norms that we have in today's society i i think at a vast level don't resonate with what people want and actually they don't, they don't particularly give way to a lot of authenticity. Whereas what you're talking about is breaking some of those expectations, breaking some of those norms and allowing that authenticity to shine through. Um, and that, that, that resonates, you know, in my, in my um, cupboard behind there, I've got a box for exactly as you said, to do pop-up space um, yeah. to just bring people together and to kind of like um, break the monotony of expectation a lot of the um the movements i've been part of that becomes quite a um uh quite a, a combative dynamic you're not paying attention to us and you should because of yeah. I'm, I'm going to force you to understand this thing and actually the effectiveness of that is sometimes difficult to uh, to see so i'm interested in how you broker that in different ways yeah if you really want to see social change and you want to um inspire others to be able to lead that going forward you have to leave your ego at the door like you've got to be prepared to be doing all the gentle things in the background that are really you know starting to develop things um but not to be the one who you know who's shining at the front you've got to be willing to give that space to other people and that it's it's not easy because you know all of our lives we're taught be the best you can, you know, tell everybody what you do. You've got to show off to get anywhere in life. And actually this kind of goes against the grain a little bit because it's not about you as an individual. It's about the growth of others and the leadership potential in others that you have to, you know, tease out. Because if they, if they get that image of you wrong and they think you're this leader who's going to lead them in battle, you know, we're not because there has to be for these movements to sustain 
they have to take on that leadership you know they have to realize that it's it's in them you know yeah. and it is and if they can find you know that's why our like when we're developing movements the the core teams are so important so who are the six to eight people who care about the same thing and are really going to push that forward and, and what are they missing you know do we need to put a call out for somebody that can do x y and z if they need them it isn't all about us as a team of eight organizers working in this city you know what we want is to see these things to grow and then maybe spawn other things you know along the way i'm wondering personally what for you as well what what do you think your big learning and high points have been be it career-wise be it on your own personal journey through everything well, it wasn't until a couple of years ago that I started to realise where my learning had started. So because of the trauma of uh, what happened with Richard and how difficult life had been, I became one story. My story with Richard was the one that I told and, it, you know, it was inspiring and it was all the things that I could have ever hoped it would be. But actually, I needed to find a time where it wasn't that story that I was telling anymore and actually Stephanie from Act Build Change uh, has got something really interesting on her website where you you basically draw out your timeline and you put all the kind of pivotal moments in your life on that timeline um, and so I did it as an activity so I thought if I'm going to coach people in this I need to understand it like what has it meant for me and I realized that you know from even from a very young age um i didn't like inequality and i didn't um i found it really difficult so my dad worked for massey ferguson and, and we had the opportunity to go and live in in warsaw um for four years i went to an american school but at the time it was a communist country so i saw stuff there that i had never seen and realized so we we lived in a nice house you know because the company put us in a nice house we had um the local kids would ring the doorbell and ask for pushki so just a tin can so they could play football see massive queues for people waiting to get food my dad would get stopped by the police they would harass him he'd have to pay them some money so i saw all this kind of stuff and then had some personal experiences as well that were quite harrowing but i absolutely loved living there and i think it taught me a lot about you know what you do when you haven't got any friends how you can occupy your own mind how you can learn things you know even learning a new language you know all of that sort of stuff felt really important so i had the most amazing experience there came back to the uk discovered that I was quite good at swimming and started going into a few competitions and got a scholarship to a school down in Somerset. So I went from that kind of life to then this, this kind of life that was all about money and power. And I was just this little girl from Cov who'd been down to Cov Market to get her duvet cover to go to boarding school with. It was horrible. It was a union jack and it was the worst thread count in the world. <laughs> I, I arrived there 
and it was like oh my god I had arrived in this this world that I knew nothing about you know I'd been living abroad didn't know anything about fashion nothing you know they were all in there wearing Benetton and all of that sort of stuff and at first I felt like oh god my life's crap you know but I tell you by the time that I left there I totally realized how lucky I was to have the family that I had, even though I used to cringe when they'd come down the school drive in a clapped out old Volvo that was bellowing out loads of smoke at the back. And, um, you know, and I used to be like, oh my God, there's my mum and dad, you know. Um, but the time, by the time that I left, I realised that actually how fortunate I was, the kind of experiences I'd had. And also, you know, having, being able to travel and swim and do all of that was phenomenal. But then I was a mum by the time I was 19. So, you know, that hit hard and I think, yeah, that was tough because I thought I was going to, you know, I wanted to go to university. So what could I do instead? So um, when the kids were old enough, I went, I started on the open university programme and worked, worked my way in that way, really. And then, of course, the son is born, you know, with Down syndrome and a visual impairment. And it was like blew my mind. And so I think sometimes you can be defined by the latest story or the thing that's happened in your life. But if you really, really look back, you can see all the things that have influenced you in that time. And that's, I think that is really key to good leadership as well, because you can then, or your whole life story, whatever it has been, there will be things that are relatable to so many other people um, if you can start to really look at it um, in the kind of stages of it happening, I guess. Um, and then I learned a lot from teaching as well. And I, you know, I think I bring a lot of what I learned from teaching into my work at Grapevine. And it's very aligned with, um, you know, the way that we work. And I just feel really lucky to have had this kind of experience to be able to do this work now. And I'm actually you know it's really weird when you start to realize that you're a change maker and you're an activist and yeah when people give you that it's like oh realize it you know and um so i guess for some people they know when they're on the front line and they're doing it whereas i guess i was kind of beavering away in the background trying to you know appease ofsted and develop you know help to realize the potential of some of the kids that I'd worked with, you know, that, that no, Ofsted didn't matter. You know, it was like, we co-created a curriculum with them. Um, they got to decide what they wanted to learn. It was just great, you know, putting the power into their hands about their own education was just, just brilliant. I think Grapevine was a, a great next step because, you know, I'd, I knew their history by that point. You know, they've been around for 25 years now in the city and that's, you know, that really is saying something. Um, and I think, well, last year was our 25th birthday. Um, so that was a real year of celebration. And now, of course, you know, we're, we're in the middle of this pandemic and fighting to, to keep doing what we're doing. But also, you know, as you'll know, you know, a lot of the big funding streams have closed. Um, yeah. And so it's like, you know, we're now like, okay, now what do we need to do? So it's, but that's the same as a movement, you know, you never quite know. So you've got to be ready to flex and change and, and really think about, you know, what your next step will be.
I think there's a little bit of more authenticity again that comes with that. If you've got a company that is stoic and is very kind of set in its ways, I think they often miss things. Whereas if you're continually having to kind of review and reflect and build, fingers crossed you stay more more in tune with the with the grassroots and you know the reality of different things. I think some people sometimes we don't realise where we learn certain things. And so when someone says to you, how, you know, why, why do you, does your heart lie with people who, um, you know, who, who might have been written off, you know, and when I think, I used to think, well, it's because of Richard, you know, but when I really think back, it goes all the way back to Poland because uh, there was a, a girl called Alexandra in my class who had cerebral palsy. And back then, we were expected to do everything for her and I didn't mind because she was my friend and she was, you know, she spoke three languages and she was wow. just phenomenal. And so I think it's important to do stuff like that because you're not just ever one story. Um, and we always talk about as well, we do a lot of work around public narrative. Um, so that hails from Marshall Gantz in the States, Farmers Union in the 1950s, you know, and there's a real structure to that narrative where you, you think about story of self and how that applies now to the story of us. So how do you widen your story? So before, when I was only ever telling story of self, I would just tell Richard's story, but that would only align with a certain amount of people. And so you have to work how you can broaden that story so more people resonate with it and want to then therefore take action with you. So you do story of self, story of us, story of now so why is it important that we're doing this work right now you know why why do we need to do it immediately because there's a lot of apathy about and if we can't get people to think about you know what what they might want to do we're missing a bit of a trick if we don't help people to understand that it's urgent like isolation is difficult you know a lot of people are struggling with it and it doesn't need to be like that because some of the solutions can be quite simple and then, you know, massively, like you saw at the summit, you've got to have a call to action because otherwise all of that is beautiful. But if people can't see ways that they can engage with it, they walk away and they forget. Narrative has been really important in Grapevine's work, you know, understanding and, and improving what we know about narrative and how we can use narrative to empower uh, leadership and we, um, when you asked me earlier about how do we kind of, um, you know, how do you get people to come on that journey with you? And I mean, I think here I'm talking about, you know, people that work within the system or within services. Um, and we started about, I think it was three years ago now we did the first one. So we did a, we call it a walk and talk. And it's basically a meander around the city centre taking in uh, certain points of the city. But at each time you stop, you will have a narrative told by one of the change makers. Um, and it's incredibly powerful. And we would, that really came about because Claire and I used to sit on different boards and, um, you know, often we, it's a tick box, box exercise, not always, but you know, the one particular board that I sat on was, and I tried to bring some deeper human connection work into it and uh so i said they made they they made me co-chair so i thought right i'm going to use that bit of privilege i've got there to see if we can mix it up a bit here and um so 
the following month's meeting i said right we're going to start with forget what your job title is we need to understand who we are like why we're doing what we're doing so your job title tells you nothing i don't know anything about you as a person when you tell me a job title so we yeah i asked people to say why they did the work that they they did and um it was incredibly interesting so three people in that room i discovered things about them that made me realize we'd got more in common than I'd originally thought. And those were the kind of people that we would invite them on the, on the walk and talk. Cause they're those people who are standing on the bridge. The ones that are, you know, they hold a certain amount of power, but they're also really interested in change and they want to understand it. And so we used to, we would invite them to the walk and talks. Um, our last one was, we had one last August and it's about getting people, out of the boardroom and onto the streets walking side by side with you know with people who have all sorts of amazing experiences and holding them up as you know this is the potential that we have in in the city um, i think probably also helping the change makers that are participating to reclaim their identity with the city their relationship yeah. with the city So in all of this kind of hecticness, what does self-care look like for you? Well, getting up really early in the morning. Um, so six o'clock this morning and going have a swim in the river. And that's, yeah, it was gorgeous. That's one of the things that I'm really grateful to the pandemic for, because I would moan constantly that living in a city, there was nowhere to swim that was close to home. It was like 40 minutes to get there. And seriously, we found the most amazing places to swim, one of which is 20 minutes away. And it's so nice because like, you know, I talk about my swimming a lot. I set up a movement called Swim and Tonic. We've got like 1400 people now um, on our Facebook group. Um, and that's that's been phenomenal because that's also been again what you saw at the summit people walking alongside each other we want to be as inclusive as possible and so all sorts of people end up coming wild swimming with us and so I, I'm grateful to have found new places and a couple of the change makers are coming swimming with me this week actually because now that we can actually go and be two meters apart but meet as a small group um, they've been bugging me for ages. When can we go? When can we go? So we're going to go probably Wednesday morning, I think, to somewhere that we found just 20 minutes from Cov. And I just can't wait to have that sort of experience mm. with them. You know, and also because I think when you're swimming in the wild, it's like nobody can stop you from exercising your, um, your right to be able to roam in a river or in the sea or wherever it is and that is really powerful as is also like that connection with nature and i do a lot of sea swimming as well and um and i think being in the sea is the most akin to um like being part of a movement or you know thinking about what a movement's like because you can be right in the middle of this great big bath space and one minute you know the direction you're exactly heading in and then the next something comes and it swooshes <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. when you're least expecting it and you have to change your tactics and you have to think right where do i go now you know how am i going to do this um 
but yeah and swimming has been a big thing for me and I you know when we first started the movement building stuff I just thought shit right I can't first thing I did was they asked us with public health and it was about getting people more physically active and I just thought oh god I'm not, I'm not actually doing anything I can't how can you be authentic if you're not mm. really doing anything and I hadn't swum for years so I just thought right that's it it's got to be swimming it is you know and and that doing that and knowing that I had that passion myself and actually that I hadn't swum for a long time as well was was you know was really powerful and so again I think I think it can become very focused on the roles that we play as a parent as a um you know your work whatever your work role is all these different things and it really resonates with me you know once you step away from that a little bit and actually go well, what actually matters to me both in the past and now and you find that and you reclaim that yeah it's swimming is a big big thing i used to competitively swim and then that interesting for me the journey was i found the competitiveness of that not too good for me the way i am but i started playing water polo and water polo tough sport but yeah, the camaraderie ship in water polo was fantastic and um and if I think now about kind of the teamwork that I do and why teamwork is so important to me and why kind of all that part of it does link into that when I was younger. Um, but no, swimming, I've never been too good at running. So swimming, I, I'm, yeah, I can swim a lot. I'm a very good swimmer and uh, enjoy it. And the other thing being cycling as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. I can't, I'm not good at running either. So you yeah. and me both there, but yeah. I think maybe it's something about... Yeah, I'm sure some people are good at both, but maybe it's uh, you're either good on land or good in sea. But, um, but, but if we look at water as well, water on a sensory level um, is, is incredibly rewarding. I, I, when I used to do um, SENK, I, I became really aware of my own sensory needs. And I say my sensory needs, I, I, if my sensory needs aren't okay, or if I'm emotionally not okay, they play off of each other. And yeah. so especially that feeling of grounded and, and swimming has always given me that because of the proprioceptive needs that pushes down. It feels, it makes you feel present, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, Partly though, the term self-care doesn't, it grates on me slightly in the sense that if you're not well and people's responses, think about self-care, you know, yeah. and at that moment, actually, you haven't got the energy to do that for yourself. So I think... You know, especially like in communities, we have to talk about that, but then not forget that we need to think about collective care. Like, you know, if we're in this together, then we need to look out for each other, you know. And I mean, I'm rubbish, I'm not very good at self-care. I, I am a fixer. Um, and so I've had to learn the hard way and I've burnt myself out on a few occasions. And I've, you know, I just, yeah, kind of, I think you lose yourself when you're like that a little bit and it's you know how do you get back to that point where you know you can you feel like you're back on track and it's you know surrounding yourself by the right with the right kind of people um but also knowing um that actually you in your own life you are the most important person you know you have to love yourself first and foremost in order to be able to um you know to be good for others or to be able to be to be of service to others you know 
Um, and if you're not, then you just you just end up you'll be burnt out. You'll not be very well. Um, it's difficult, I think, because you've got a lot of people that come into this, you know, this the you know the industry of change making because of the difficulties they've had, or because of the things they've suffered from, or because of the things that they've experienced, which they don't want other people to experience. Yeah. And I think, yeah, like that's definitely been a journey for me about feeling valid in my own experiences, but not letting them encompass me. Um, and yeah, finding that middle ground. Because if, you, if you're on either side of that middle ground, you can't, you can't do this kind of work effectively, oh. I don't think. It's really hard. And then also like, it's that battle with, you know, when you know that you need to do, so, when you've been that fixer, and then all of a sudden in your life, you realize actually, I need to fix myself. Um, that you then have that battle with all those people who are expecting you to do X, Y, and Z. And it feels liberating to turn around and say, I can't, you know, I've got to focus on this or, you know, this is the time when I have to do this because this is for me. And for, you know, for many of us, you know, we do, a, we do an awful lot for a lot of other people. And that's what I mean when I was talking about leadership earlier. I think for me, you know, I used to like have a very old fashioned view of leadership. Um, you know, because that's what we're taught, that's what we're brought up on, and you're on a journey, aren't you? And when you start to realise that you don't have to be at the front of things, that's when you are actually also looking after yourself as well. Yeah. Because if you feel you've got to jump in all the time, then you're not growing authentic leadership or change making in others. Because if they have to keep coming back to you, um, then you're not you're not quite hitting the nail on the head but it's hard it's you know this work is hard and I wouldn't be able to do it without you know all the amazing people that I get to meet and work alongside at Grapevine you know it's going to sound a bit cheesy but you know they're just yeah like I feel really lucky to know like so many amazing people um, who will check in and say what are you doing you know, you said you weren't going to do that anymore. And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. And then you feel equally comfortable to say that back to them as well. Because um, every now and again, we need a bit of a reminder. Um, it's, it's funny. I think that is a really powerful thing. I, um, you know, I've had a few occasions where I felt that in work. And recently, the team I work with now, I very much have that with. And I feel incredibly lucky for that because I've worked in a lot of places where it's been quite the opposite. But also, even within change making and change making communities, I have a very difficult relationship with with a lot of the past because I feel like, right, if you do these things, and I'll be, I'll be, they'll think I'm really good, and I'll be in with the in crowd kind of thing. And actually, I was not, I was being dishonest with myself. And the thing again, the thing that Camarado's community, and they know it as a community because I share this, is me just coming as me. And that being a journey of things, I don't by any means get everything right now. And I'm on that learning course, but also day to day. Some days I'm good, some days I'm not good. Um, but I can just be present. And then I have people not only accept me at that place, but also kind of engage with me at that place um, and check in with me. I think once you, once you find that community and start helping to build it, it's invigorating very empowering and um warming as well i think 
Yeah, and also like being honest about your own vulnerabilities and not knowing everything. You know, none of us know everything. And I think that's our whole thing. Often, you know, we will, we go into all of this work saying, we don't, we haven't got all the answers, right? We need to find them together. Um, and you know what? That is such a powerful thing because it stops you from feeling that you have to be the answer for everything and that actually collectively you will find the answer. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, it just feels innately human to be able to say that to others and to know that if they then walk into their own leadership, then they can say the same thing. I haven't got all the answers. You know, they can say the same thing. And that's, you know, incredibly powerful because I think you're supposed to be respected, I guess, you know, some of the things you're taught as you're growing up for the, the amount that you know. Um, but if you know that your journey is never over, like the learning never stops, does it? So I think a lot of your work uh, resonates with the Compassionate Troublemaking Manifesto, uh, which I sent you before. I'm just wondering what what really resonated with you in that? The one that I love is about being a thorn in the side of the status quo. I was like, yes, that is that is our work. You know, it's like, how do we create enough enough disruption in order to be able to get people to look over and think what's happening over there, you know, and tickle their fancy with things. And I think that that's brilliant. And I think the one around make the unexplored your home felt really powerful as well. Like growing spaces where new ideas can not only be tested, but can be taken apart, explored and made, made stronger. And that is like the definition of collaboration station. So I was like, if I could do that thing with your fingers where you click, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I can do Yeah, no, I can't do either. <laughs> I'm doing that right now. And I think like... Yeah, like even the walk and talks, everything that I felt that we're doing that allows us to dream big and, and find that collective energy behind that behind an idea is the thing that makes us feel more powerful. Last question is the uh, the bar questions. This was something that Math from Camarado uh, started up because he goes, he sees camera, uh, he sees um, the compassionate troublemaking movement as a uh, as a bar at the end of the day after a hard days uh, change making all the compassionate troublemakers can come and, and as the cheers theme song used to say where everyone knows your name and uh i really like the questions that's continued and i like what different places in the bar mean to different people so yeah so for the final question where would we find you in in that compassionate troublemaking bar well most of our work is conducted in bars pubs cafes you know invariably that you know where you can get alcohol um and that's where i do my best work you know whether it's me just being sat there in a moment of solitude on my own and knowing that i'm in the right space in the community to find the people or bump into the people that um you know we are working with and alongside or i'm you know having a one-to-one -one, so sat in a corner somewhere with someone talking about life, you know, talking about their experiences. Um, but equally, I will eat with everyone as well. So we often find ourselves in the same place. Next thing we know, we're ordering, oh God, should we have another bowl of nachos? Um, 
so just like I think it's a it's a really great question and I guess there's not one just one answer is that a bit greedy because I think no I, it's not greedy at all I think I roam about a bit and um and probably morph um into different areas of the bar so you know happy to dance with people as well if they want you know pretty much yeah that's where I you know spent most of my good days before the pandemic and I haven't been to a cafe a bar or a pub for a long time now <laughs> it's all oh, been yeah. awesome. but yeah. we did have part of um we did a change maker and we did the change maker university so it was six weeks of training of change maker training and um, when we did the graduation, we created a bit of a pub so people could bring their own cocktail in the form of a quarantini. And um, <laughs> mm -hmm. so we did all get to have a drink together on that evening. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was nice. It was nice. I will, I will end that with, um, with just saying thank you, Mel, for joining us. Um, in the description will be all the, all the links to Grapevine and stuff. And I'm really excited. Um, having worked in Coventry but live outside of Coventry, you know, just excited to see what happens for Coventry as a as a city and you guys being a real central component of that. Yeah, thank you. Well, I'm glad. I'm delighted to have come on. I've never been on the podcast before, so it's like you know, yeah, sail the ship. <laughs> I feel very <laughs> privileged to be uh, to be your first uh, your first yeah. one. It was very it was very nice actually. Thank you. Thank you very much. And there we go. It's taken nearly a year to get back to this point. So as I said at the start, my apologies for that. And and thank you to Mel for uh, for being episode one of season two of Compassionate Troublemaking, uh, Confessions of a Troublemaker. Um, I've got some more episodes that are going to be coming up over the next few weeks that were recorded last year as well. So they're a bit out of date but i think still hold a hell of a lot of importance of really interesting conversation um so they're going to be coming up and then at the same time i'm hopefully going to be recording some new episodes uh so we're gonna we're gonna play catch up and then we'll be up to date uh so by all means let me know who you want to hear if you want to come and have a chat with me yourself drop me a, a message go and follow on social media at compassionate troublemaking or at waistcoat dave for me own uh, and yeah, thank you all for joining us and I'm really looking forward to building back up. So yeah, I'll see you again soon. ta -ra.